Welcome to Envision, the podcast to travel to new terrain into the world of possibilities, where conversations with visionaries, their experience and their imagination take place. We explore ideas and desires to widen individual vision and expand the collective together. Let's imagine a new world and speak it aloud, letting that vision become our inspiration to create it. If you're here, you believe in the power of transformation. I am Aurora Morfin, and I am so grateful that you're here. Hello and welcome, Joanne. So happy to have you here. Oh, I'm so happy to be here, Aurora. Let me introduce you. Dr. Joanne Hash is an SGI Buddhist, proud mom of gender non-conforming twin, professor of health psychology, PhD in behavioral neuroscience, and to quote a former student, opening quote, disabled woman who grew up in a cattle ranch, uses a wheelchair, but can also walk around, closing the quote. She feels passionate about wellness, being a good citizen of the planet and community she lives within and around, and affecting social justice change through personal transformation and supporting others. Oh, I'm so excited to discuss with you today, Aurora. So welcome, Joanne. And I usually start the podcast by asking, like, what was the world like from your child's perspective? Oh, there are so many layers, I guess, to my uh, childhood perspective, because I was... Yeah, I was growing up on a cattle ranch and it was its own little community of progressive Californians in a very conservative, very Christian area. So there's that layer of my experience of being, being embedded in the natural world. Um, and at the same time, it was kind of counterculture because it was so different from the other kind of branches that existed in the place that I was at. And then there was the element of being physically disabled because I've been physically disabled with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis since I was two and a half years old. And at that time, there were no, no known real treatments for it. It was just symptom control, essentially. And so kind of navigating this very physical world as a child with a disability. So there was, there was magic in my world, in my childhood, um, in this, this intimate connection with animals, with plants, um, really being immersed in nature. And at the same time, there was frustrations with not being able to engage in the same way that other people around me could engage. And so I think from a very early time in my life, I felt different on a lot of different layers. Mm. And that different, how was like received or how was embraced from your family? Yeah, it was, it was a huge challenge because my parents were young. They were in their early 20s when they started having children and they were not well equipped to deal with something that was so difficult and so foreign to their own experiences. And so there was a lot of love, but there was also a lot of confusion and frustration and doctors at that time were really, really condescending and paternalistic 
and patronizing. So at one point, um, as, the, as my parents were trying to get a diagnosis for whatever was going on with me, they took me to a doctor who told my mother that it was her fault, that it was all psychological, that I was jealous of my new brother, who was two, two years uh, younger than me. And it was just, it was all in my head. And so, and, and she only had a high school education. My dad only had a high school education. So they didn't really have the knowledge tools to, to feel confident in challenging that kind of system. Thankfully, my mom is also a very loving, very stubborn person, and she refused <laughs> to accept that. Um, and so she continued to fight to find a real diagnosis. So, you know, as a mother now, but as a woman who had children later in life, I can't fathom being a 20-year-old young woman, being away from family, being away from everyone I know, and then having a sick child. And you don't know why the child is sick. There was a lot, a lot going on that that my family had to to deal with. That was really, really challenging. But I always felt loved. I always felt supported and cared for, even through the really challenging and difficult times. Yes, and I guess you're touching upon something like super important that is key. You know, if when you have that love, you can go through everything because you have that support. And on the other hand, I got like two messages, you know, like they were like, as you mentioned, they weren't well equipped in the knowledge, you know, in the literate, if you will, of like the medicine at the time. But on the other hand, she was equipped with her intuition and with all that we humans have naturally, despite of the circumstances, to keep pursuing what it feels right in our heart. Absolutely. And what is right for the ones that we love. Right. Absolutely. So in that regard, I mean, you mentioned that it started when you were two and a half. How was was the the evolution of it for you? Because it was when you also, you know, start growing and start moving around. Right. Yeah, I was was super, super healthy baby, super healthy toddler running around. And the first symptoms that my mom noticed was that I was limping out of nowhere I started to limp and then my neck got really stiff and started to get kind of frozen and I would get these fevers it's a slow burning kind of a condition it's an autoimmune condition that is slow to evolve but again because there were no medications at that time to arrest the actual disease process it just continued to develop over time increasingly disabling became hard for me to walk eventually I ended up using a wheelchair because I couldn't walk very far because of the joint contractions that I was experiencing. So it was it was a slowly evolving process. Mm. Almost as a child, you, you really couldn't understand it. You know, I, I, I look back now kind of thinking, oh, had I known then as a child, maybe, maybe I wouldn't have fought these certain things um, that, you know, my parents and physicians were trying to do like splints to prevent continued evolution of of the condition and physical therapy that was painful and and it's hard as a child to understand you know splints are painful it's hard to sleep when you're in a splint you're uncomfortable all the time so it's hard to get to sleep and stay asleep 
Um, so as a child, you just think, no, don't, don't do this to me. <laughs> this is just torture. Um, but those were the only known ways to kind of arrest the development at that time. Yeah, so it's, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but at the same time, this is a child, you know, I was, I was a child. And so as an adult now, I look back with, with this deep sense of compassion mm-hmm. for, for the, the child that I was, you know, experiencing this really difficult and strange world. Yes, and I just cannot imagine, not even imagine, you know, like pain for your mother seeing you. And as a mother, you want to just do everything in your hands to help your kid, even when it might seem like a torture. But it's just like if someone is telling you that that will help or that will make things better. Right. Yeah. At one point, I was in traction for, I think, six weeks. So they brought a special bed in and I was in this traction bed for like 20 hours a day for weeks and you know I've I've always had a resilient spirit so my mom has these pictures of me smiling and coloring and things of that nature but it was an incredibly painful experience it was 20 20 hours a day being stretched uh, essentially, and not being able to go to school and not being able to play and not being able to engage in other things. And my mom looks back at those pictures with me and as a mother now, just thinking about what she was experiencing during that time too, it, it's heartbreaking for me to, to think about not only what I went through, but what she had to go through in in watching me experience those things. Yes, I I hear you in that regard because it's it seems that it it wasn't not just you experiencing that. It's when you have someone in your family, it just affects and has an impact in everyone, right? right. I mean, and that happens regularly, but not to the extent of of your case or or anyone like you. Right. So there's many aspects that I want to cover or I could go into. What is the experience in your house and how, you know, the love and the resilience within your family, within you, of course, has taken you all the way to where you are now that I see a brilliant woman full of wisdom. And on the other hand, me from that as an outsider, I would like to understand more of how I haven't lived anything like that or I haven't been close to anything that has something like that. I have a few friends that have kids with autism, for example, and I've seen how it's a really difficult experience to even come into acceptance of that first and then all the process of embracing it and living with it. Right. And we as an outsiders don't understand or many, many times we're even afraid to approach or, you know, it's, I don't know if it's fear of saying the wrong thing or fear because you don't even know how to approach or how the other person is feeling or, I don't know, there's some, as you said, there's so many layers involved. How were you referred to or how you like people to, to see you or to identify you? Ah, that is an excellent question. <laughs> so first of all, I want people to identify me as a fellow human being. I mean, fundamentally, 
that that is how I wish to be recognized and honored as, as a fellow human. Um, so at that very deepest core level. Um, in terms of terminology, there is no right way to, uh, <laughs> to refer to people with disabilities. Even in the community of people with disabilities, there's, there's different perspectives in terms of, do you prefer a person with a disability? Do you prefer a disabled person? Because in, you know, there's person first language, so you're putting the person first, human first. But at the same time, disabled person indicates that it is the social structures around us that are causing the disabling. It's not inherently um, whatever condition we have, whether it's autism or an autoimmune condition or asthma or whatever it is, it's not inherently disabling. It's the social construction around that is the disabling piece, in which case you put disabled person first. Um, so the, the terminology is very, it's very person specific. So my advice is always to ask mm. what terms people are most comfortable with, they feel most fit them because there are no two disabled folks who have exactly the same experiences, who, you know, even with um, the same conditions. So for example, my roommate in grad school also had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and it happened at a very, very young age. Up to that point, I had never met anyone like me before. <laughs> but here was this, this person who, I mean, she looked similar to me. She had a very similar life experiences. But even so, we had very, very different perspectives. We had um, different degrees of internalizing ableism. And so every person with a disability is going to have terminology, is going to have language, is going to have different levels of comfort. So I think it's very, very much person first in terms of respecting the other person enough to ask them. Mm, definitely. And I guess so many of, of what each person is dealing, and that happens to everyone of us, I guess. It's just like, depending how you grew up is how you feel, you know? Many of us with all the abilities that you might think socially, you know, require, we might feel unworthy or insecure or you name it. So many things. Absolutely. And on that, at the layer of having different abilities, right, is just how we are all processing differently. Right. Thank you for that. Yes. So let me ask you, what are the beliefs that have helped you create the world that you live in now? Uh, my fundamentally, um, my Buddhist philosophy, my SGI Buddhist philosophy and practice has been really profoundly instrumental in helping me to combat a lot of the internalized ableism that I had experienced as a young woman growing up with a physical disability. You know, my parents were incredibly supportive, but I had other family members who weren't. Mm. <laughs> um, I had other people in the community who weren't. And so, and of course, watching TV in the 70s and 80s, you know, there's no representation of disabled females that is in a positive light. And so there was a lot of so much self-doubt. I had so much self-doubt um, growing up 
as a young woman with a physical disability, but I was pretty stubborn, so I masked it well. Um, I put on a good front <laughs> of confidence, but internally I was, I was riddled with fear and anxiety and lack of self-worth. And so it was when I encountered this Sokagakai Buddhism that really helped me to work through a lot of that and to be able to reveal to myself, you know, to be able to see what it was, these, these negative beliefs that were holding me back, that were preventing me from challenging myself in certain ways, that were getting in the way of going for things that I really wanted. Because I was smart. I was always really smart. I was well-read. Um, and so I had big goals, but I was absolutely terrified to leave my familiar surroundings and the people that I knew and that I loved. Um, I was a fantastic strategist. <laughs> so I would come up with 800 different scenarios for things that might happen because again, in a world that is not built for you, you need to have lots of pre-planning, you know, just to go to the store, you need to have lots of pre-planning to go on a trip, you need to have lots of pre-planning. So I was a fantastic strategist. But the idea of say, moving across the country for grad school, which was something that I was going to need to do if I really wanted to pursue my dreams, was absolutely terrifying to me. Until I encountered um, this SGI Buddhist philosophy and, and my Buddhist community too, who I knew would be there to support me wherever I went. And, and so it was, it was really this, this foundational philosophy that has been so instrumental in me being able to see it, first of all, because you need to be able to see it to really address it, and then to have the courage to, to move forward in the face of fear. Mm, yes. And within this uh, journey, I, I imagine, of course, it was a long process, uh, but within it, how, how do you come to acknowledge your abilities? The practical way is chanting. So I chant Nam-myoho-renge-kyo morning and evening. And to kind of explain how it works in a nutshell, is it's basically the name of our Buddha nature. And so just like if I say, Aurora, you will, you will turn to me and you will respond, right? When I chant Nam-myoho-renge-kyo, I am awakening Buddhahood, which is this source of infinite courage, infinite wisdom and infinite compassion. And it gets beyond that kind of ego, intelligence that I tend to get stuck into and I think most of us tend to get stuck in and it allows me to bring forth that wisdom and that courage and that compassion um, and to know the to to be able to manifest the correct actions then in my life mm. Mm. oh that's powerful is there any belief that have consciously shifted your life what do you mean by belief um for example you have the belief that you're a resilient woman because you have gone through so many things and you are you have the belief that you first and foremost are a human being 
you have the belief that you know you have so many beliefs and within your circumstances and your situation it's like is there one or or more i mean beliefs that might help you like radically shift your life in any moment you know i think it it goes back to really challenging myself to believe in my own buddha nature and that's that's fundamentally where it's at because when I can remember <laughs> that I am fundamentally a Buddha, then I can, I know that I can do anything. I know that the, my life is limitless. And another layer of this um, Buddhist philosophy is the concept of intentionally taking on certain karmic challenges. And so this concept was really, really important for me as a young woman. When I first started studying about it, it really revolutionized the way that I thought about my disability. Because for so long, you know, the narrative of being a disabled person is you're a victim. You're a victim of your chronic condition. You're a victim of the accident that, you know, made you lose a leg or, um, spinal cord injury or something like that is so it's this why me this sucks (laughs) you know and um this idea of intentionally taking on this challenge in order to help other people completely shifted the way that i thought about um my mission in the world essentially so instead of being a victim i think this is a challenge that I intentionally decided that I wanted to take on in this manifestation of my life so that I could help encourage other people, so that I could show other people that if they really, really deeply believe in their Buddha nature, anything is possible. And I've seen that manifest in many ways. So for example, a student came to me when I was in grad school. She, she was in a class that I was teaching and she said, you know, I've always been really anxious and afraid of everything. And I see the way that you navigate the world. And I'm amazed. And you've given me the hope and the inspiration and the courage to know that I can do it too. And so it's moments like that, 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 that really just totally flip the narrative. Yes. And in that regard, I, I, one time I heard she, she was in a wheelchair and at some point she turned and he was like, yeah, but I'm tired of people telling me that I'm inspiring, <laughs> you know? And she said, like, I just want to, to hear like everyone else, you know, tell me that I'm hot, tell me that I'm beautiful, tell me. And, and I kept thinking about it, you know, and, and in one way it's like, yes, I hear you. But on the other, like you cannot take out the, the inspiration because it is inspiring. You know, how many people with all their quote unquote abilities, because, well, that's another layer that I want to touch upon, are doing nothing with them right. or nothing apparently, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally get where you're going with, with this. And it's the difference between um, empowering somebody through your example and then inspiration porn where, you know, and, and this is something that I actually talk about with my students too, when we talk about disability, you know, applauding me 
for picking up butter when I go to the grocery store is unbelievably condescending. <laughs> you know, that kind of, oh, you're so inspiring because you're going about your day um, is, is a very different thing from, I see you. I see how you're challenging yourself and it is helping me to challenge myself. Those are two very, very different, um, I think, forms of quote unquote inspiration because they're coming from very different places. You know, the, the person who's coming over and applauding me for cutting my steak when I'm out to dinner <laughs> with friends um, is, is coming from a place of superiority to me. Mm. Whereas somebody who's saying, you know, I've really struggled with this and I see how you're not letting your challenges get in your way of being successful. That is coming from a place of, I'm, I'm learning how to be a stronger person because of you. And, and so those two things are very, very different things. Mm, yes, thanks for, for shedding like full light on, on that thought that I had, but it was like you, how to make like clarity out of it. Right. And that takes me, you know, to, what I was saying about like these kind of different abilities. Oh, I have the belief that we all have abilities. They might look different in each other, but we all have abilities. As you mentioned, you know, it's a socially constructed idea of walking this way is ability versus not walking that way is not ability. Right. So in that sense, it's just like a matter of what or how we recognize the abilities in each other and how do we really bring out the talents in each other despite of the format your body has taken, if you will, right? Right. So right. How, how did you make or what happened in your life to make sure that you brought up your talents up front? One of the things, I mean, it's, it's a residual of not being able to go out and be as physical. So I naturally, you know, gravitated toward books and curiosity and the love of knowledge and inquisitiveness. And so I was just a voracious reader. So that was foundational to me and, and realizing that through that, um, I was really developing my intellectual skills and that this was my strength. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, it's just like, yeah, that takes me just to highlight that in this world, we're missing spaces where we all can flourish, where we all can develop our talents, despite of like how we look off or how we, you know, like are called to be. Or maybe because of, or maybe because, <laughs> you know, that's, that's um, a part of our, of our talents manifesting is as a response to to those obstacles and challenges yeah what comes to me now is just like you know i i don't know why but like an image of different flowers mm -hmm. you know if you just walk around there's these tiny tiny micro flowers that are like next to the road and then these exotic colorful big ones you know but that doesn't mean that one is a different flower or most beautiful flower they're just flowers that they are different and have different purposes and different expressions if you will Absolutely. Absolutely. Life would be really boring if you were all a bunch of bananas. <laughs> let's, let's have a lovely fruit salad. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. 
So from your perspective and experience, how would an accepting world would look like? And I don't know if the word, you know, the, the opposite of disabled would be accepting or you can help me what, what it would be. I think it would be empowered um, because ultimately the only reasons I'm disabled are because, you know, I can't walk upstairs very easily. Um, walking long distances is hard, are hard for me. Um, and kind of thinking about the pandemic and how it has unfolded and what has, it's actually made the world more accessible for me. So for example, you know, the ability to drive up to the grocery store and just have somebody put my groceries in the back of the car or deliver the groceries to the house um doing telemedicine calls as opposed to you know driving to the doctor so i haven't changed during this time but the world has it has become a more empowering place for me a place that is more responsive to my particular needs and so i think um a world that is accessible is a world that is willing to make the accommodations that are necessary and meaningful so that people can thrive and flourish. Mm. That we don't have to do things a certain way, that we can be more creative about what it means to have a work week, what it means to um, to be able to navigate your hometown and you know you know we're talking a lot about physical disability here but I think it's also important and this is something that I also point out when I'm teaching my students is that mental disorders are actually far more disabling than physical disorders so you know we tend to think of and you know this is an exercise I do with my students I say the word disability what do you think and most people think wheelchairs they think wheelchair placards and things like that but when we're talking about disability, we're talking about impaired function. And so mental disorders are actually far, far more disabling than our most physical disabling conditions. And so again, kind of thinking beyond kind of built environment barriers, thinking about stigma around mental health issues, thinking about providing more accessibility to good counseling, um, and again, the pandemic has shifted things in a way that even that has changed a bit. And so people no longer necessarily have to leave their home to get counseling. And that was a huge barrier for people with mental illness. So I think a world that is just much more flexible <laughs> and willing to do things in a different way, willing to see things from multiple perspectives um, and, and eager to do it eager to, to shift, to allow people to really live a meaningful and contributive and value-creating life. Mm. Yes. Yes to all of that. Is there something that I, as a person with no disabilities, so-called, quote-unquote, I mean, not what we have talked, but just like as they are known, might not be seeing or might miss from your perspective? Again, what 
what I have a tendency to encounter out in the world is that people conflate intellectual disability with physical disability. I can't tell you how many times uh, cashiers have asked my 10 year old <laughs> for, my, for um, money to pay for things when we go out shopping, for example. So to stop assuming that because somebody uses a wheelchair or a mobility aid of any sort, that that is the same thing as intellectual disability. So again, you know, recognizing the humanity yes, and seeing, seeing that first. Hmm. And, and another thing that I think is important is to talk about it, um, to talk about it with kids, to, to not hush children when they're curious because kids ask questions because they're curious. And when you silence them, it stigmatizes having conversations around this. And then so they go out into the world not knowing how to interact with people who look different from them and being, being told basically that it's not something to talk about. Being open, you know, openly discussing things. Representation is important as well in the media. Um, these are all things that, are, that I think are really, really important. To, to normalize different experiences. Yes. If you would have a, a magic wand to change the world as you please, I mean, we have <laughs> talked a little bit, but what, what, what would you do? I would wave my magic wand of Namiho Rengekyo and have everybody really, really deeply believe in their own Buddha nature because fundamentally, I think, all discrimination, all fear comes from a fear within, comes from insecurity, comes from conditioning and things like this. And I believe that if we can all really believe in our own Buddha nature, we then believe in it in others. And when we can do that, we would never harm another. Mm. We never, we, we only wish, we only wish for others' happiness because ultimately we're all connected and my happiness cannot exist apart from your happiness, Aurora. If you are unhappy, I cannot be happy because we are all intimately connected here and we're all intimately connected to our environment. And so I, I wish for everybody to realize their own beautiful, pure nature and our interconnectedness, our fundamental interconnectedness with one another and with the world that we exist in. Mm. Yes. I would, I would make a kind of a parenthesis there for anyone that it's not into Buddhism. Can you explain what's the Buddha nature? So it's super clear. Yeah, Buddha nature is essentially this source of infinite wisdom, courage, and compassion mm. in a nutshell. Hmm. Is there anything else that I might be missing that it's important to name? I think another element um, that we haven't discussed, but that's really important, and, and I've been exploring more through actual social, social media communities, is the intersection of disability and sexuality. 
because, you know, in, in our culture, you know, we don't talk about disability. It's a dirty word. We don't talk about sexuality either. And so when you have the intersection of those two realities, um, I think they both need to be talked about more. I think they need to be discussed more um, because there's so much misconceptions around ability or disability and sexuality. And it's really interesting that there's this notion that you know disabled people are asexual creatures. Well, at the same time, four times more likely to be victimized sexually in their lifetimes than people without a disability. And so this is something that needs to be discussed more. It needs to be um, celebrated more. It needs to be seen more. Yes, I totally hear you because sexuality is like, I guess it's not easy to talk because it's not even easy to talk for people so it's like how am I going to talk it even within more layers deeper right or at least it might seem mm -hmm. how was your experience when you grew up regarding sexuality um you know growing up on a cattle ranch <laughs> sex is something that you see all the time it's a seasonal thing it's happening in the backyard almost constantly um <laughs> so so it's a natural thing um At the same time, it wasn't something that we spoke about in terms of humans. And particularly, you know, as a disabled young woman, um, there was this one instance in which I was going to the local pizza parlor with my dad and brother and grandparents. And we're driving past these kids who were out on dates on a Friday night. And my grandmother looks over at my father and says, aren't you glad Joanne's not normal? And so that moment was, was really kind of emblematic of internalizing my unworthiness as a romantic partner. So, you know, I have this strong, you know, sexuality because also as a disabled person who lives in a kind of uncomfortable body most of the time, sex is fantastic. It's one of those, you know, it's those times when it, you just feel really physically fantastic. So a strong hunger for me. And at the same time, this internalized message that I am not a worthy partner, you know, and not being able to talk about that, not having a safe place to discuss that um, it was really, really hard and led to lots of unhealthy um, romantic dynamics in my life. And it, it really wasn't until I was in my late 30s, early 40s that I really started to interrogate that and to look at it and, and question those internalized beliefs that I had. Um, and it's still a process. And so I think having, having those conversations and normalizing conversations around sexuality, regardless of who you are, but particularly for disabled women in particular, I think is incredibly, incredibly important. And who helped you? How did you manage to do it? Because I mean, 
if, as you mentioned, you know, you didn't find any other friend like you with similar conditions, physically at least, who did you talk to about it or how? I didn't. Oh. I just didn't. I didn't talk about it. I just, I just internalized everything. And that's an unhealthy place to be. It, it leads to unhealthy choices. It leads to uh, um, boundaries being crossed. So yeah, in a, in a nutshell, I didn't talk about it. And it, it really wasn't until you know, social media communities started to, to blossom that I saw, oh, look, this is a thing. I'm not, this isn't something that I'm dealing with alone. So although social media gets <laughs> gets dissed a lot, in this respect, um, connecting other disabled people to one another and, and having this shared reality has been really, really important. Mm. It's been really connecting, really validating. Yeah, it is key when you realize that you're not alone and you're not the only one going through whatever it is in your mind. It makes a difference because at the end, it, it what also shows you how interconnected and how the interbeingness, it's necessary. Yes. When you like, I mean, I guess I imagine when you move to college, you start going out different aspects of your life exploring and growing different than when you were at home right right what did it help you there friends friends help support so friends are so so important um even though you know they don't they haven't had the same experiences that i've had their love was something that was there and present and supportive and and helped me see when i was making choices that were not reflective of my worthiness and at the same time, that also normalized the desires that I was experiencing. Because again, that, you know, my family loved me, but that wasn't something we were going to talk about. <laughs> so, you know, friends, friends were really, really instrumental in that time. Mm. And how was motherhood for you? Motherhood's amazing and really hard. <laughs> um, you know, I was so afraid of the idea of being a mother on so many levels. So for, for all of my youth, um, I just said, oh, I don't like children. I don't want any children. But again, through my Buddhist practice to help me see that that was actually a fear response. It was me being afraid of, first of all, how my body would handle carrying a child. No idea how that was going to go. Um, and also how I was going to be able to physically care for another being. You know, I had this idea, I, I am the one that is cared for. I'm the one that is the dependent. How am I going to be the one that's the caregiver? And so there was so much insecurity and uncertainty around the idea of motherhood. Um, as a matter of fact, as I started to work through it, through my Buddhist practice, um, it took me almost a year of chanting specifically about that to even muster up the courage to have a conversation with my husband about wanting to possibly think about starting a family. Um, but it was almost instantly after that conversation that I became pregnant. 
<laughs> and and I had the most fantastic pregnancy. Um, my I've never been healthier than I was while I was pregnant. Just blissful, <laughs> blissful pregnancy. And you know, I was also afraid, um, genetically speaking, am I going to carry this autoimmune? tendency in my child. And so that was something that I was really afraid of too. And again, I was chanting to have this healthy, strong, strong baby. And one of my biggest fears was, you know, those infants with their floppy heads. <laughs> you know, I was envisioning, how am I going to hold this little baby's head up? Um, and my child ended up being incredibly robust and healthy and could hold his head up from like day one. <laughs> And so uh, Jet is, is an incredibly healthy, um, amazing person, um, evolving human being entity. And, you know, it's, it's been an amazing journey. It's been so revealing of my strengths and becoming a mother really helped me shift my perspective on my own body because for so long you know I was at war with my body I would deny it I would ignore it <laughs> I would badmouth that you know disparaging my body all of the time I had this really adversarial unhealthy relationship with my body because I just resented all the things that it wouldn't let me do I resented the pain that it caused me I resented the insecurity that I felt um, stemmed from it and carrying this child the way that my body rose to the occasion to create and so beautifully nurture this new life was just beyond anything I ever could have fathomed and it really changed my relationship with my own body mm. you know for the first time I had so much appreciation for it I thought wow this this little body of mine that fights and is trying so hard did this really incredible incredible thing um and still continues to support me and so you know one of the most beautiful aspects of becoming a mother was shifting this relationship that I have with my own body mm -hmm. and it's an ongoing relationship shift because there's so much conditioned beliefs that I've had. Um, but I'm in a place where I'm at a place of appreciation now, instead of antagonism, a place of gentleness and caring and wanting to nurture and show reverence mm. for this body of mine that has brought me here. Mm. Oh my, thanks for that beautiful reflection. And I'm so glad that you overcame your fears and <laughs> get to have that experience that has just changed so many aspects and has bring you a wonderful companion. Yes. And teacher for life. Yes. Yes. <sighs> I want to be mindful of the time. Uh, so I would last uh, a last question. If I could give you a permission slip, what would you give yourself permission to? <laughs> I would give myself 
permission to go get a passport <laughs> and book a flight to to Denmark to visit my very very dear friend who I simply adore <laughs> and have an amazing adventure. Oh, yes, 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 please do so. <laughs> oh, it has been an honor. Thank you for all your words. I don't know if there's anything else you want to add. I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for giving this space to people like myself to be able to share um, in a very vulnerable and safe and loving setting things that are really, really important and, and should be put out there into the universe. And so I'm just full of gratitude to be here um, and share this with you. I'm so grateful for your words, for your sharings, for your vulnerability and all your wisdom. And I'm so grateful to have crossed paths with you in this life. Me too. Thank you, Aurora. Is there any work or anything that people might be interested to follow from you? You know, I, I don't know. I'm not a very present person out in the <laughs> universe. Um, but I think fellow babes with mobility aids like Aaron Unleashes, uh, Aaron Clark is really a remarkable source of encouragement to me. Um, Alex Stacy, who is also just phenomenal. Um, so there's, go out there and look for these amazing, extraordinary, fierce, uh, disabled women who are who are challenging what what society thinks is possible and what society thinks is acceptable. Pansy mm -hmm. St. Batty, also really, really fantastic. Um, there's just so many, so many folks out there to become familiar with and, and to learn from. Yes, thank you, Joanne. Ciao for now, and meanwhile, you are invited to envision and take action. What can you do today to create the world that you want to live in?